If you would please open in your Bibles to John, John chapter 17, and if you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 5 and then verses 22 through 26. Yes, we are still in 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians 11.3. We're exegeting one phrase, which is God is the head of Christ, and so it seems good as we really are, are now taking a bit of a, a time, taking some time to talk about the topic of the Trinity that we'd go to John 17 where really the depths of the Trinity are revealed even though they are not explained. So John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Please be seated. Michael Reeves, who wrote an excellent book on the Trinity, which I'm I've been recommending to you, and in that book, he makes a description of the nature of monotheistic gods that aren't the God of the Bible, like Allah. And he says, such are the problems with non-triune gods and creation. Single-person gods, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings, and so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be an irritating distraction for the God whose greatest pleasure is simply looking in the mirror? Creating just looks like a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do. And if such gods do create, they always seem to do so out of an essential neediness or desire to use what they create for their own self-gratification. Well, this is certainly not our God. Our God does not create out of a need to create. He creates out of, out of an overflow of his very character and nature. He does not create because he needs to express love, because he has been, is love from eternity past into eternity future. And this understanding, our understanding of who God is, the unique triune God of the Bible, is the most important thing about who we are. As Christians, we understand that God is triune, dependent upon nothing and eternally loving. How can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love involves loving another? The answer is that he cannot be unless he is triune. So what we'll see this morning is that the understanding of God as triune means that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one in essence, are unique persons who share an intimate love relationship which forms the foundation of our relationship to God and to one another. The understanding of God as triune means that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one in essence, are unique persons who share an intimate love relationship which forms the foundation of our relationship to God and one another. The God of the Bible is triune, which means that God is love. Now, we are, as I mentioned, 
looking at one phrase from one verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that is, God is the head of Christ. And you'll remember last week that we defined each of those terms. The identity of God, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11.3, is God the Father. And we define headship, that is, one who exercises God-given authority or God-wielded authority for the good of the relationship and back to the glory of God. God the Father is the head, the one who exercises authority, really the one who directs and guides for the good of his own person and for his own glory, he is the head of Christ, that is the God-man, the one who is fully God and fully man. The Christ is, is, the, is the anointed one, the Savior, Christ in his office as our Savior, but also as Lord and Master, as fully God and fully man. So God is the head of Christ. And then we talked about the reason for the statement. Remember, Paul isn't just simply waxing eloquent on theology, although he is, He is doing that because he is dealing with a practical issue. That is the expression of headship and submission in Corinth, in their public worship. And so he's laying the groundwork for a proper understanding of what headship means, of what authority and submission are, and he's grounding that in the very nature of God himself because God defines our relationships. As I read in John 17, our love for one another is defined by God's love And God's love is defined by His nature as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we began then to discuss the nature of the Trinity, really kind of an exegetically driven topical message or series of messages on the Trinity. Why? Because Paul brings it up. And although he does not take the time to dive into the depths of the Trinity, I am taking the time because the Trinity ends up kind of being in the water for Christians. We understand that we are Trinitarians, that we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet we forget what that actually means. And so it's good for us to dive deeply into this so that we might delight in the God who is unique. He is not Allah, the God of Islam. He is not some other monotheistic God. He is not defined in any other way than how the Bible defines him. And sometimes we forget this. Having been taught well about the Trinity or maybe taught little about the Trinity, we don't necessarily understand the implications or the things that we actually believe. These things cause us to delight in God. That's why he expresses himself. But also these things cause us to begin to understand how it is that we relate properly to him when we understand his character and nature. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. The relationships in Corinth were built around a proper understanding of who God is in his character. This defines us. What we think, what we know about God is the most important thing about us. Now, we began by talking about a a creedal definition of God. That is, out of the word of God was drawn what we call the Nicene Creed, what is called the Nicene Creed, which really just puts together the pieces of the nature of God as defined in 325 and then 381 AD, not BC, as I said last week. This was after the death of Christ and his burial, resurrection, and ascension. It'd be amazing to have a discussion on the Trinity before Christ came. Uh, And then we talked about the biblical definition then. So the the Nicene Creed just simply draws out the implications of, the proper understanding of what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. And you you must remember that the Nicene Creed was not born out of a desire to sit around and talk about theology only. It was driven out of a desire to know who was in the church and who was not in the church, who was a believer and who was an unbeliever. That's why Nicaea was done, because people were, the Arians were saying Christ is a created being. They were misunderstanding the Trinity, misunderstanding the Bible, and therefore they were trying to decide, are those people really Christians? Nicaea answered, no. You are not a Christian if you do not believe that Jesus is God. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't come together out of some esoteric desire to figure out how many angels dance on the head of a pin. The Trinity is not that. The Trinity is an issue of are you a Christian or 
aren't you? What you believe about Jesus, and therefore what you believe about the Trinity, defines who you are. So we looked at the biblical definition. The Bible teaches that God is one. The Bible teaches that God exists in three persons. The Bible teaches that each of the three persons is God, and the Bible teaches that these three persons are one God, wrapping our way back around to the nature of the Trinity. Now, as I mentioned last week, I'll mention it again, but I want to clarify. There were some great questions last week. Rarely do I have like lines of people uh, after a sermon, uh, and I had them, and I had them again this morning because the Trinity is something that we walk through. It's like, wow, I, don't, you know, I didn't even know all these things. But what I said was that it's necessary to be a Trinitarian, to understand God as trade in order to be saved. What I mean is this. You aren't required to affirm or understand all, everything about the simplicity of God or the unity of God's attributes, or someone be able to explain the intricate nature of God as three, uh, three persons in one essence. However, in order to be truly converted, you must believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. In order to do this, you must acknowledge that God the Father is God and God the Son is equally God, which is at the beginning to confess the first two persons of the Trinity, right? At the very least, right? We understand Trinity is Father, Son, and Spirit, but you must understand that Jesus is God. And in doing so, you open up the mysteries of the Trinity because you have Father, God, and Son who is God, and then as we look into the Bible, we see the nature of the Spirit as God as well. Now, you don't go too far into Christianity before you must affirm the Trinity, because when you are baptized, which is to be the first step of public obedience, what is the baptismal creed that is drawn from the Bible? Matthew 28, 19 says this, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The entrance into Christianity, that is, baptism does not save, it simply gives expression of the salvation that took place. But in that expression, you are proclaiming God as triune in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those names are equated. Imagine, I'm about to take someone and baptize them. We baptize by immersion. So I'm about to take them down, and I'm like, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I get them halfway down, and they burst out of the baptismal tank. What? Are you saying that God is triune? Are you saying that Father and Son and Holy Spirit are all equal? Well, yes, that's what I'm saying. Back in the tank. <laughs> you have to affirm that reality. That's what we teach in our class. That's why we teach a membership class that speaks of God as triune. You affirm this from the very beginning. And if you do not affirm that Jesus is God, you are not saved. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Lord is always God in the scriptures when it relates to Jesus. Jesus is always referred to as God. Lord means more than that. Well, it means all that God means, master, ruler, but it never means less than God. If you do not confess that Jesus is fully God, you are not a Christian. And so we must proclaim. That's why you must profess. You have to get the gospel right. It doesn't take a long time to say Jesus is God, fully God, right, and fully man, equal with the Father, it doesn't take long to say that, but if you don't say that and someone believes in Jesus without that, they do not confess that he is Lord, they're not a Christian. All right? Or some other Jesus that you might somehow confess. The content of our faith is essential. You must believe in the biblical God who is triune. You must believe in the biblical Christ who is both God and men. The object of faith matters. It's not just faith. It's not just faith in a name. It's not just faith in a concept. It is faith in the real God. And so you have to actually believe in the real God that is proclaimed in Scripture. We forget this. You have to have the content of who Jesus is in the gospel that you present so that people can properly believe. 
If someone professes to you the name of Jesus and does not tell you that he is the God-man who lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose from the dead, your faith is in vain. You are still in your sins. You cannot be a Mormon and come and proclaim Jesus that people must believe in Jesus when the Jesus that you are describing to them is the, is the brother of Lucifer who was a man who became a god. That God does not save because that's not a real God. You cannot proclaim the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses, a Jesus who is a created being, an Aryan creation, right? That, that's what the Arians believe. That's what the whole controversy began with, that Jesus is a created being who himself then created. No, he's not a created being. He is God who created. So the content of your faith is essential, and believing that Jesus is God, which it opens up the mysteries of the Trinity, is necessary to believe. And then I also mentioned that modalism, where God is not three in person, he is one in essence and one in person, that is a heresy. That was proclaimed as heresy. It's called Sabellianism, is the way that it was um, mentioned in, at Nicaea. The issue is that if God is not three in one, then Jesus at some point isn't God because when Jesus is making profession or when he's interceding to you before the Father, which one of those is God? And if Jesus ceases to be God, which is what modalists teach, he ceases to be God in 1 Corinthians 15 when he ascends or when he gives the, uh, gives the kingdom back to the Father, then you believe in a Jesus who is not God eternally. And so you cannot be saved. That is not a Jesus who saves. Romans 8.34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Three in person, one in essence, and that is essential in order to believe biblically about the nature of who God is. Well, this morning what we're going to do then is continue on really taking the topic of the Trinity, right? We'll discuss biblical proofs for the Trinity and then the biblical explanation of the Trinity. We're going to try to stick as best we can with simply how the Bible describes this because the mysteries here are deep. I spent uh, doing a doctoral class last year and I read 10,000, literally 10,000 pages on the nature of God as triune. And I came away pretty much understanding what I'd understood before, what the Bible says, all right? Again, there's, there's mysteries here, 10,000 pages as they were explaining the nature of the Son and the generation of the Son and the eternal nature of their love. It's, it's wonderful stuff. It was really good. And I came back to this and said, well, that's pretty much what the Bible says. We're going to have to keep it there because we can't get a lot further than that. Not that it isn't a mystery. It's sweet. There's implications as we will see, but we can't get much past that no matter how many pages we write. Yet it is important that we look to see what the Bible says. First then, Biblical proofs of the Trinity. Now, I went over some of these last week, but one of the things that I, one of the reasons that I said I'm doing this series is that you, as the congregation, would be able to open up your Bibles and show someone the reality of the Trinity from Scripture. You need to be able to do this. And if you have not been able to do this up until now, you now will be able to, so write these down. Write them in your Bible. Write them in a little progression. Sometimes you might take one verse and then write the next verse in the margin so you can move to that chain reference that you create yourself. Do it however you want. But when you have any other religion, you are going to have to explain to them the nature of Christ. In order to do that, you are going to have to move into the nature of the Trinity at some level because that's how it is denied. You need to know this. Not just elders need to know this. Missionaries need to know this. You need to know this because you are missionaries. You live in a world where everyone that isn't a true Christian denies that Jesus is God, denies the nature of the Trinity. So I'm giving you the verses. So write them down as I give them so you can then use them 
right? And I'm also then not only giving you the verses, the goal after that is to give you an explanation of the verses as best I can. So Old Testament demonstrations of the Trinity, right? In the Old Testament, the Trinity is a mystery, a mystery to be revealed in the new. That's how much of the nature of God is, right? We see in the New Testament the mystery of God revealed. Not that you have to search for it like, you know, a game of clue, just simply that it's revealed later. So in the Old Testament, there are the beginnings of the explanation or really the demonstration, not the explanation of the Trinity. For example, so Old Testament demonstrations in Genesis 1.26, you have let us, God says, God says, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. All kind of verbiage about, well, that's the magisterial we, you know, where someone, well, one person says we. That is no, there's no indication, Elohim, that God is used in a plural sense when it's meant to be singular. Here, it's used in a plural sense because it's meant to be plural. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now let us go down. Genesis 11, 7, come, let us go down and confuse their languages. Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah 6, 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? God is not stuttering, right? Us, there's multiple, there are three persons in one. Now, this is not a proof of the Trinity, it is the demonstration in Scripture of it or the beginnings of our understanding that God is three in one. Again, these things are important. The word Trinity is not used in the Bible, but the concept of the Trinity is everywhere. There are a variety of Bible doctrines that work this way. Well, show me the word. No, I'll show you the concept, and the concept is undeniable, so we give it a word, and the word we call it is Trinity. God's name is applied to more than one person in the same text in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the, one of the most quoted verses by Jesus and others when it comes to the nature of God was Psalm 110.1. 1. The Lord said to my Lord, right? Yahweh said to, or Adonai says to Elohim, sit at my right hand until I make you, your enemies a footstool for your feet. Remember, Jesus asked the Pharisees, well, if, if the Messiah is David's son, how does he call him Lord? <laughs> well, only if he's God, right? That's the only way that works. He is his son, but he's also Lord. So Psalm 110.1. Then there are three persons are demonstrated or certainly intimated, the three persons of the Trinity in certain texts, like Isaiah 48, 16. Come near to me. Listen to me. This is the, this is the Messiah speaking. For from the first I have spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So the Messiah is speaking, keeping himself on equal plane with the Lord God, and then the spirit of God mentioned there as well. Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the Lord upon, is upon me. This, again, is the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive. Jesus quotes this. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. So the three persons of the Trinity there, Jesus quotes this later saying, I'm, I'm the anointed one. I'm here. The one that made this proclamation is here. And then very clearly in Isaiah 9, 6, the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one is God. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and on. There is no question right, that this concept of Trinity is revealed, not explained, but revealed 
in the Old Testament. Well, then you have a, a, a further and stronger demonstration of the Trinity in the New Testament as the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are then revealed. They're laid out together, and then each one is revealed as God. And I'm not going to take the time this morning to make the proof for each one of the individual members of the Trinity being God. I'm just going to give you some of the key verses that reveal that. There's more work that you can do to then point out the individuality of each one the deity of each one of the members of the Trinity. But I'm just going to give you a couple of verses that will help you to move in that direction so that you can demonstrate these things. So New Testament, well, there's direct references to the Trinity, the baptismal formula, which I mentioned in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of, singular, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, equating all three names. One God, three persons, three names, not different hats that he wears clearly, but three persons, and yet each name is equated. Imagine a Jew hearing the Father and the Son and the Spirit all placed together in equal authority, baptizing in that name. They They would have considered that heresy to the extreme, right? They did, and they still do. Those that, are un, those that do not know Christ. So that's the baptismal formula. Then one of, my, one of the sweetest passages, all right, Paul's benediction after 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians 13, 14, here we have all three members of the Trinity, right, and Paul's praying in their name, right, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He prays in the name of all three. He commends all three in their character and he equates all three. Now, there's many, many more passages. I'm giving you a few that are helpful for you so you can kind of you know, write those down in your Bible and walk people through them. And then, of course, the uh, direct references to Jesus and God the Father. These are most clear in Scripture. The Spirit, as always, points away from himself to glorify the Father and Son. There's not a lot of explanation of the nature of the Spirit being God. It's clear that he is. It's clear that he's an individual person within the one essence of God. And yet it is, even in the book that the Spirit writes, the Bible, he very often, most often, points to Father and Son. So it doesn't surprise us that their relationship in the Trinity is highlighted in Scripture. And of course, John 1.1, this is the go-to verse at any time. If you desire to talk about the nature of the Trinity, you begin with Father and Son, and you begin here. Certainly, this undoes any kind of modalism, that is, that God wears different hats, that he's only one, that he is one essence without three persons, and that that essence just has different names, right? Clearly, John 1, 1 refutes this. In the beginning was the Word, and we know the Word to be Jesus. Just read the rest of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's a personhood there. And the word was God, you have the contrast. He was with him, but he also was God. Not God who put on one hat of God the Father and then immediately moves over to another one of God the Son. No, he is two in one there, three in one we know from the addition of the Spirit or understanding of the Spirit in the rest of the Bible. But in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He has eternality as God the Father. All things came into being through him. He creates as God, as, as that's, a, that's a work of God, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I, I always begin there. I know this, you know, they'll bring you your Bible and says, it says, a God. It still doesn't describe with God, was God, all right? Oh, and the nature of that, well, that a God that the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, that a God created everything, right? that a God does everything God does. So I just proclaim this verse and then work the, my way through the rest of them. Jesus, of course, so some other things here. Jesus' reference to himself as God. These are important. I'll just give you a couple. 
Because each of the cults and false religions, if they know anything about the Bible, well, the cults do, they say Jesus didn't even claim to be God. Right? He didn't even say that he was. And yet, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And the Jews said, are you making yourself out to be God? He says, yes. Right? Essentially, I, that's what I'm doing. They thought that's what he was doing. And it's funny, I'll have Jehovah's Witnesses come and say, oh no, the Jews misunderstood Jesus here. They were going to pick him up and stone him, and he tries it. No, I'm not really. He's just not deny that he is God. He says that he is. And the Jews, who would have known how Jesus was portraying himself, what it meant to be the Son of God and to be one with God, understood that Jesus was saying he was God. And then John 8, 58, really that whole passage there, 44, 45, down to 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And yes, of course, they picked up rocks to stone him because they knew that Jesus was quoting from Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asked the name of God and God says what? Tell them my name is I am. Jesus clearly, unequivocally, right, proclaims himself to be God by saying he is literally the I am, the eternally pre-existent one. You can imagine they were scrambling for the stones because they understood what that meant. Now, direct reference to each member of the Trinity is God. Let's finish out with a couple of verses. God the Father claims to be God, as it were. That's all, again, that's all throughout all the New Testaments. But Revelation 1.8, some say this is Jesus speaking. It could be. Right? I take it to be God the Father here. But I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus as fully God, Colossians 2.9. This, this is one of my favorite go-to verses. It says, for in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. How much? All. All of what? The fullness of what? Of deity dwells where? In bodily form in Jesus. He is the God-man. Fullness of deity. No less, not a subsistent creature, but fully God dwelling in a body. And by the way, next week is the hypostatic union where the two natures of God are, exist in one person. Most of your questions still will revolve around that, right? So that's next week. But nonetheless, there you have it. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And then for the Holy Spirit, really two verses that I think will help. Again, these don't in and of themselves prove the deity of the Spirit. They simply give evidence to it. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. Who seals? God does. Who could possibly hold you till the day of redemption? God, the Holy Spirit. And he's, his personhood is clearly evident there. Do not grieve. It's not just some force of God, not the breath of God or the wind of God, right? As the United Pentecostals would say, as the Apostolic Church would say, as those who deny the Trinity would say, the Spirit of God is an individual within the Trinity. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There you have the equation. God and the Spirit equated with God, and then Christ and the Spirit. All right? So the Spirit of God clearly being deity, clearly being an individual personage within the oneness that is God. So those are some verses. Right? You now have them. Study them. The next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to the door, walk through, you won't get all the way through those verses, I guarantee you. All right? And they will try to turn you upside down and all around. That's fine. Just begin walking through. Walk it through with your children. Walk it through with your family members. God is triune. The beauty of the triune God, the God in whom you believe, should cause us to fall to our knees and worship. He is unlike any other God. And now let's talk about the biblical description of the Trinity. So there we, it's declared. It's declared for us in those verses. All right? There are three in one 
So how does the Bible describe this? Right? There's much discussion. As I said, the 10,000 pages I read, and there's much more, right? Hundreds of thousands of pages written, and all well done to try to work through the nature of the Trinity, but it is an eternal God we're talking about. And so therefore, we have to be careful that we don't over-define. We just try to take what the Scripture says. So let's try to do that and with the most basic things that the Scriptures say about the essence of the Trinity. Well, the first one is what one we talked about last week, that God is one simple essence. That is, His one nature as God is not separated. It's not divided into parts. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not each parts of God. They are each fully God. And we don't have to be able to understand all that that means, the simplicity of God, as it were, just simply that it is so. Otherwise, you have three gods. That's the problem. If Father, Son, if God is divisible, if he's not one essence, then you have three gods. And that's what the Jehovah's Witness will tell you. So you've got three gods. The Mormons, everyone will tell you this. What's the matter with you? You have three gods. Now, it's fascinating that there never has been in the history of the church a segment of the church that taught for any length of time that there are three gods. Why? Because that's not the church at all. I mean, Arians who taught that Jesus was a sub-level being, but nobody taught three gods. Why? Because it is so strongly laid out in Scripture that God is one. Right? You can have errors about the person of Christ. Again, we'll talk about those next week. But rarely do you have someone who would get up you know, in a church and say, there are three gods. People would just walk out the door. Right? And yet, if God is divisible, that's what you have. Right? No, one in essence. Right? That's essential. And then how do we understand the relationship? Right? How does the scripture reflect to us how those three persons, who they are, that's really what we're talking about. Well, it gives us who they are most fundamentally in the names of God. The names that are given in the baptismal formula, the names that are given throughout Scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit. Those are fundamentally descriptors of the relationship within the Trinity. Now, here's where we have to be very careful. As I mentioned last week, our terms when we say Father, Son, and Spirit right, are analogous to who God is. That is, we think about what fathers are, who fathers are, what they do. And there is certainly in that language of father, son, and spirit, particularly father, son, right, we get some echoes of, all right, what do fathers do? They give life, they beget, as we will see. There's a love relationship because those things reflect truths about the Trinity. But what you need to understand is the Trinity is not a reflection of human fathers and human fatherhood, right? Human fatherhood is a faint echo of the nature of eternal fatherhood, right? Those words have to be translated through into the eternal mystery of the Trinity, and you can only go so far when you say father. So I want to be very careful with that. You're not equating, not some amped up super dad. That's not what we're talking about, right? Father has a relationship. It has analogy to what we would understand as father, a loving individual person who cares for, provides, gives life. Those things are true. But remember, it will only go so far. So don't apply all that you know of as father and son humanly to the spirit. So words, human words, and yet they describe concepts when moved to the Trinity that are really beyond our full comprehension. We have to go with what the Bible says about them. How does the Bible describe God as father, Jesus as son, and the spirit of God? Well, the, the Bible describes it, number two here, is that the son is begotten of the father. That's the primary word used. So we understand the relationship in the Trinity primarily of the Father and the Son particularly as the Son is begotten by the Father. The Father begets the Son. Now, you are aware of this, or maybe this is something you haven't thought about much, but that word is used continually. Now, it, it, just the word itself, 
right? It means to be born of, right? That's generally the word. So we're going to have to figure out what does it mean born of when it comes to God, right? Also, there is the idea, monogonase, this word, of, of the unique or one and only. But it is both of those. Over the, over the years, people try to break them up. It's either one and only. It's, no, it is both. The one and only begotten son, right? Both those terms are built into that word begotten. But this is all over Scripture, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then we have that, have that idea of unique, only begotten, generated by the one who comes from the Father. John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only, now this is fascinating. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. This, by the way, is pointing us towards the idea that the Son is always the Son. He didn't become the Son at the Incarnation or some other time. It is the only begotten God. He is always, has always been only begotten. Right? That's the nature of his begetting by the Father. Now, one of the most familiar verses in Christianity says this basic truth. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Right, that one word, monogonais, there, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Right, so only begotten is the term most often used. It's used in the Old Testament, Psalm 2, 7, speaking of the Messiah. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Been much ink spilled there, that's quoted in Hebrews 1.5. But I don't think we understand today as a time reference, that is, is simply that when the incarnation happens, he becomes the son. Why? Because the love that the father has for the son has been expressed to the son into eternity past. That's why I read John 17. That love of Father for the Son has always existed. Today is speaking of the eternal decree of God. This decree is being expressed. You are the Son. You have been begotten by the Father. That's an eternal begetting, not a one with a time reference. And then God has sent that only begotten Son into the world. Right, it's, it's fascinating. He didn't beget him and send him as he didn't beget him as he sent him into the world. He was the only begotten Son who was sent into the world. That's very different. He's always been the only begotten son, and he was sent into the world as he takes to himself a human nature, and that's next week, right? The only begotten son. John, 1 John 4.9, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Begetting, therefore, does not involve, uh, involve a, an origin or, or a, 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 a coming into existence. That's huge. For us, the idea of begetting means they didn't exist, they do now. Right? So if you are a father, you didn't have a son, and you do. Right? At the moment of, of conception, there's a child. Well, Jesus was never conceived in that sense. He didn't exist, and now he does. He has always been generated, as it were, always been the son, always been begotten by the father. It's the nature of the Trinity. That's how this is descri described. So beginning doesn't involve origin, but equality of essence. That is, when you think of the nature of a son, right, the emphasis is not on he didn't exist, now he does. Yet the idea is on he came from the Father and bears his essence. The Son carries the essence of the Father. So the word itself means to give birth, begotten. In the case of the infinite God who is spirit, this cannot mean that God physically has a child. So we wrestle with what it means for God the Father to beget a son. It seems best to understand this idea as the Son... Uh, that as a son comes forth from parents, so the son comes forth from the father 
eternally. He has always come forth. He's always the son because the father is always the father and he carries always the perfect, exact nature of the father. John MacArthur. The beginning mentioned in Psalm 2, his cross-references don't, don't have to do with the origin of his deity or humanity. It has everything to do with him sharing the same essence as the Father. Expressions like eternal generation, only begotten Son, and others pertaining to what's called the filiation of Christ must all be understood as underscoring the absolute oneness of essence between Father and Son. They don't evoke the idea of procreation. They were meant to convey the truth about the essential oneness shared by the members of the Trinity. So this oneness means an, a perfect expression of and, a, and an always coming from. That's the always begotten. That's the nature of their relationship. It defines the relationship, father and son. Now, there's another portion of this. So much of what I read in my doctoral class has to do with simply the idea of begetting or coming from, the, the perfect essence of the nature of God. and does not emphasize enough, as Scripture does, the fact that along with father, comes the idea of a love relationship. That does translate through. We think of fathers who are, who are to be what? They're to love the son. They love their children. When Jesus says, Abba, Father, he's not saying, well, you know, Abba, one from whom I am generated. Right? It's true that he comes from the Father always and eternally, not secondarily. But it's also true that he references their what? The love had. That's John 17. The love that has been shared between Father and Son from all of eternity. He says, Father, today I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me and see my glory, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He addresses him as Father, and that fatherhood moves back into eternity past, not simply when he becomes the incarnate Son. That's a different issue. Jesus is God's beloved Son, all right? And we understand this from the Father himself who proclaims this. So MacArthur again, in calling Jesus his beloved Son, the Father declared not only the relationship of the divine nature, but a relationship of divine love, the begetting and the love that comes with that. They had a relationship of mutual love, commitment, and identification in every way. So when, when God calls the Son in Matthew 17, 5, what does he say? A voice from heaven said this, this is my beloved Son, the Father calling the Son his beloved, the one on whom he has placed his love. And again, that's from all eternity. That's why we call this eternally proceeding. So the son is begotten of the father. That defines the father-son relationship, which has echoes in ours, but is an eternal, infinite relationship, which has to do with the nature of the son's relationship to the father and the exact expression of his character. Right? He's the perfect likeness of the father as the son. Well, what about the spirit? The nature of their relationship together as described Right, is less clear in Scripture, less obvious. But I think it's good for us to understand we would say it this way, the Spirit proceeds. As the Son right, is begotten, the only begotten from the Father, the Spirit is never called begotten. He's not the one begotten by the Father. It's a different relationship within the Trinity. We would say that the Son proceeds from the Father, the one who is sent. The Son is essentially, his function is, and, and really his nature, is the sent one. He proceeds from the Father. John 14, 26 that the Father, the Holy Spirit, whom the, uh, excuse me, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And that's not just simply the sending at that point, but John 15, 26 helps us understand this idea that he always proceeds. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, this is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. That's the idea. The Son eternally proceeding from the Father. 
right? He will testify of me, but also we would understand this, right? as, as this is expressed in the Nicene Creed, as it reflects these truths in Scripture, at John 20, 22, he said this, he breathed on them, so, this, so Jesus also sends the Spirit. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, which is why we say, right, the Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Right? This is not in any, they're exactly the same in essence. Right? This is who they are within the Trinity, the nature of their relationship together. The Son begotten by the Father, the Spirit proceeding from Father and Son. Now, what are the implications of this? Now, again, you're like, wow, what does all that mean? Well, it's, that's about as far as we can get. That's, that's only begotten, proceeding from, but there are implications. The idea of the, the nature of the love relationship, the fact that there is a difference in, in, the, in each person as reflected by their names, Father, Son, and Spirit, what are the implications to us? And these are the things that, that the reason that we're teaching back through this, so that we will again remember Right, why these things are communicated in Scripture so that we will both honor the Father properly, respond to Him properly, and proclaim Him properly. Now, again, I'm helped here by Michael Reeves, who put a lot of this together in his, in his book, which is just, it's a, it is a delightful book, Delighting in the Trinity. But he's just, again, drawing out the implications of that triune relationship. So the implications of God as loving Father, that means God's primary identity is Father. Now, not, in essence, His primary characteristic. That is, we, you know, remember, they're all... Jesus, God is all everything that he is. But his primary role, primary identity, not role, but identity, is as father. Why would we say that? Well, we can think of God as creator. But God as creator is in relationship to what? His creation. From all of eternity, yes, it was planned that God would create, but there was a time, got to be really careful here, there was a time when creation wasn't. Was he still the father then? Yes. Before creation. Did he be, does he become the father when he creates human beings. No. He is the Father from all of eternity. So this is his very identity. If he is, if his primary identity is creator ruler, then he needs creation to rule in order to be who he is. And for all his cosmic power, he is pitifully weak. He needs us. If he's primarily creator, he's not, he's primarily father who creates. Always the father who in the expression, as it were, of his fatherhood always has has generated the Son, always had the Spirit proceeding, and then chooses to create out of this, the overflow and delight of his own nature. Again, Reeves, our definition of God must be built on the Son who reveals him. And when we do that, starting with the Son, we find the first thing to say about God is, we believe in one God the Father. The most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he is Father. And as such, he is the giver of life is the giver of life. John 5, 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gives to the Son also to have life in himself. Eternally, always the Son has life in himself because the Son comes from the Father and the Spirit comes from the Son, all having life. And it is the Father who is described as the giver of life. The Father, in, in, his, in his loving, he gives life. In doing so, he generates the Son and then in doing that he provides then makes creation, giving life to all of creation. He is the giver of life. The Son is the eternal Son, right? God is the giver of life. The Son is the eternal Son. It's important to note that the Son has always been the Son. There was never a time he didn't exist. If it were, then God is a completely different sort of being. If there was a time when the Son didn't exist, then there was once a time when the Father wasn't yet the Father. And yet, clearly, Jesus himself reflects the eternal nature of that relationship of God as his Father 
who loved him from or into eternity past and into eternity future. Therefore, D on your outline, God is eternally love. He can only be eternally loving because he is triune. That is, he's not a singular God waiting for someone to love. He's a triune God who has the fullness of love expressed in his persons. There's no need for him to have anything else. This makes him who he is, that he is love because he is triune. And the Father has loved the Son, and the Spirit, as we will see, has then stirred up and been part of that love from all of eternity. God is not needy like every other God. He has loved the Son in the Spirit for all of eternity and could have done so had he chosen to without any need ever to create. Fully satisfied, completely and totally God without needing anything because he's triune. Those are the implications. Always love. And yet, then that, that love flows out of the Father to us. What a blessing that it overflows that love of the Father. But please understand this. It is the love of the Father for the Son, which is an eternally generated love that overflows out to us. And the love of the Father for the Son remains primary, even though he loves us. This is what the world forgets. And so all of our Christian songs are about how much God loves us, as opposed to how much God loves his Son, and therefore created us to express his love for his Son. This is essential. If there's no Trinity, this makes no sense. And you and I are as important as we think we are. But if there's a trinity, we're not as important as we think we are. And yet, and yet, we are able to bask in the love of the Father, who out of the love for the eternal love for the Son, enabled us to enter into that love and poured out that love through us that we might express the glory of God in Christ, whom he loves eternally. So God can only be eternally loving because he's triune. In the eternity past, God was a father loving his son. John 17 that I read. All of eternity, he's been the father loving his son. And God rules his creation, then his loving father. This is so important. Again, Michael Reeves. Oh, let's go to Calvin instead. All right, John Calvin. We ought in the very order of things in creation diligently to contemplate God's fatherly love, a foreseeing and diligent father of the family he shows, to whom he shows his wonderful goodness. To conclude once for all, whenever we call God the creator of heaven and earth, let us at the same time bear in mind that we are indeed his children whom he has received into his faithful protection to nourish and educate. So invited by the great sweetness of his beneficence and goodness, let us study to love and serve him with all of our heart. He is the creator who is loving Father. Now, where does this, what, is, what part does the Spirit play? I think we would understand the Spirit of God then as being the one who stirs up, who is, who, who is within the Trinity, the stirrer of love, right? Shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. We get a, a hint of this in Romans 5, 5. This hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. How? Through the spirit who was given to us. It seems to be always the spirit's job, pouring out the love of God, sharing it amongst the Trinity as they each have this love shared from all of eternity. That's about as far as we can get on that. Again, Michael Reeves, it's all deeply personal. The spirit stirs up the delight of the father and the son and the delight of the son and the father. We see that when, when Jesus says the spirit of God comes into our hearts, and it expresses itself even through Christ in what? Crying out, Abba, Father. The Spirit loves the Father and stirs up that love, even in the Son, as it were, and that etern- again, an internal mystery of, this, of the Trinity. Well, then finally, and this leads us to next week, so we won't spend much time here, back to really the primary characteristic that Paul is expressing. The Father, then, is the head of the Son. Some not subordinate in any way, and yet the nature is always father to son. That's always how we see it in Scripture. 
And the Son responds to the Father. Not because they have different wills, not three wills in God, but because He is eternally the Son. All right? Who does the will of the Father expressed in the person, in who He is as the Son. Again, Michael Reeves, while the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, there's a very definite shape to their relationship. Overall, the Father's the lover. The Son is the beloved. The Bible's awash with talk of the Father's love for the Son. And while the Son clearly loves the Father, not much is said about it. Why? Because the Father's love is primary. The Father is the loving head. That means that in His love, He will send and direct the Son, whereas the Son never sends or directs the Father. You never see that in Scripture. It's hugely significant, Rose goes on to say, as the Apostle Paul observes in 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a woman is, is man, the head of Christ is God. In other words, says Reeves, the shape of the father-son relationship, headship, begins a gracious cascade, like a waterfall of love, as the father is the lover and the head of the son. So the son goes on to be the lover and head of the church. So we bring it back full circle. Why are we talking about this? Because of the very nature of the Trinity that expresses to us what it means to love, what it means to be head, what it means to submit. All of these things are found within the very character of the Trinity itself. And this is my prayer, that you will ground all that you do as a Christian back into the very nature of God. You must do this. We must understand our theology, our understanding of God better so that our lives more carefully reflect the nature of who He is as triune, the loving Father, the responsive Son, the accomplishing Spirit, all perfectly equal, and yet, in their identities, three persons in one God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the delight of your word, which takes us into mysteries that, that we cannot fully understand, and yet by your spirit can begin to, to just simply fall on our knees in awe. Lord, a God like none other. There is only one God, the Father, only one Lord Jesus Christ, only one spirit sent to seal us until the day of redemption, and Lord, I pray that you would help us to rejoice, to delight, and to declare this truth, or that we would declare who you are, that we would know your word and proclaim it to others, that they would properly understand who you are and then be able to properly confess Jesus as Lord as they fall on their knees in repentance and faith. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.